1: Why did Jesus weep, knowing already before Lazarus was born that he would die, that he would have this scene, and he would bring him back to life again? Well, let's see if we could take from this passage some application. So let's continue now where Jesus wept. Verse 28, it picks it up. And when she had said this, she went away, and she called Mary her sister, saying secretly... The teacher is here and is calling for you. Now what she means by secretly here is more like quietly. Because what was going on was that Mary and Martha were back perhaps at their home. They were mourning over the loss of their brother Lazarus who died. And around them would be others, particularly Jewish people. And in those days when someone died... If you were very poor, you would still be expected to, like they do at many of our situations here, that they have certain expectations at funerals and weddings. Well, back in this day, at a funeral, at a service like this, you'd be expected to at least hire two flute players to play some mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning music, as well as to hire one woman who really was trained to be able to exude and express wailing and sorrow. So that would then be a part of that to say, I really grieve the loss of my relative or friend. Now, if you were wealthy, and I think that Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably had some means, so there might have been more musicians there, more wailers there, those that were weeping. And so that's going on at this particular time as they're all together. And so she separates from that. And it says, and when she heard it, this now would be Mary, she got up quickly and was coming to him. So in other words, he was almost that day's journey into Bethel, but not there yet. Bethany, but not yet. Verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him earlier, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life, verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, those were the mourners, maybe some friends, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there implying that they were one place and that they would now go to the tomb, thinking that's where she would be at. She finished her weeping at the home. Now she's going to go back to where the tomb is. So they kind of ran and thought they'd be following her there. Verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think this is a very interesting verse. It seems like it's just simple little information, but there's a lot of truth in that. What you'll find between Mary and Martha, you would find two sisters that really have, what I would think, different personalities. You're going to find Martha, as you read through Scripture her testimony, when you read about her or what she is actually doing, she's very active. So you might want to put the word activist in your margin. Martha was very much of an activist, always about doing things, very pragmatic. She would be the one to try to figure out situations, making sure everything was done right. We're going to call her high task. She was high task. Then you have Mary. Now, Mary's different. You'll find that every time Mary is mentioned, somehow she falls at the feet of Jesus. She was all about that relationship that she would have with Jesus. That doesn't mean Martha didn't have a relationship, but it does mean that her relationship with Jesus was more born in a task direction, where Mary's relationship was more in a high-touch relationship. So she fell at his feet. The other interesting thing is both of these ladies, the sisters, said exactly the same thing. If you look again here, it says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you go a little bit uh, back into what we were teaching before from the other week, you're going to find that it said the same thing. But this time, uh, Martha was saying this thing differently. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Look in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you see those two and you kind of roll them up and you move on. But if you were following along in the original language that this was actually written, it actually says a little bit more than that. Now, it's not going to correct this. They're both right. It's like a rosebud. When you open up a rosebud, you just see a little bit more. You smell the aroma, but it doesn't cease being a rose. So in your English, it's a rosebud. But when you open it up in the language that this was written in, it kind of opens it up a little bit more. For Martha, when she said this, the emphasis is not on brother. It's on the word, my brother. Had you been here, my brother would have been healed. Implying, don't you care? This is my brother. If you'd have been here, you'd have done something to relieve my pain. Look what's happening to me. I'm the one that's hurting. I lost a brother. It's all about relationship between her and her brother. When you move to Mary, in the later section here... The emphasis is not on my in the Greek. It's on the word brother, my brother. In other words, she's thinking of others where Martha is thinking of herself. Now, what is interesting is there is not an overt rebuke to either one. It wasn't like all you care about is others. You need to care about your own needs too, Mary. Don't be in a state of denial. You should grieve as well. He didn't rebu- rebuke Martha. Martha, you shouldn't be grieving. This is really wrong how you're doing all of this on the outside. You're caring all about yourself and you don't care about anybody else. What about your sister and the other family? Didn't do that. What he did is he took two of them, let them both open up to him. He heard their hurts. And he began to deal with them in a special way. And we get a chance now, thousands of years later, to observe the workings of Christ. So while this is all about substantiating his lordship and that he is God, there are a lot of other truths that also let us know about the Christian life and how we live it in our relationship with the Lord. And so this is very much a rich portion of scripture. Let's go a little bit further in this, if you will. So it says here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, which would be a form of wailing now, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And says, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, see how he loved them. Well, let's look at that passage again. That is also very rich because the word weeping there is different than where Jesus wept. I said a moment ago weeping and I threw in the word wailing there. In other words, Jesus is watching them wail like the world. In other words, you are handling death just like someone who is a pagan might do it. Someone who is outside knowing that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. That you really weren't connecting to the spiritual matter. So he's kind of troubled about all of this. I think another one that might even be a better explanation of the troubling was the fact that Lazarus died and when he died... As all people die, that is the ultimate end physically as a result of sin that started with Adam. We all die now because Adam sinned. And so we're looking at the consequence of sin. And so we're not saying, Lazarus, this is the sin you died for. We don't know any of that. But we do know that because of sin, it brought death and he's died. And so now Jesus is weeping over that. And that fits Scripture too because in Ephesians, when we as a Christian sin, the Holy Spirit grieves when we sin. So there is this sorrow when we sin because of the consequences. And it might be one other thought, and maybe I'm stretching the uh, exegesis on this. And that could be the sorrow that there would be because Jesus is going to have to take all the sin of all the world on himself and the sorrow of that momentary separation from God the Father when he was paying for sin when he was on the cross. All that it was going to cost. And there was that weeping. And then finally, I think another reason for the weeping is, is that he really loved Lazarus. Here it's the Jews are looking on the outside and says, Jesus wept. See how much he loved Lazarus. He wept. Now that word wept means that he was quiet and then he kind of exploded into tears. It doesn't say exploded into vocal wailing, but he did weep and cry. Now the argument could be made, well, if he's crying here and he already knew that he... Um, was going to die and he already knew that he was going to raise him from the Lazarus from the dead, why would Jesus be weeping? Let's always remember that when Jesus is on this earth, he is all God and all man. And at this particular juncture, he is relating. That's the key part. He is relating to the needs of the people at the moment. Giving truth, proper rebuke when he needed to, instruction when he needed to, but he's also modeling very much that human part of God in his nature where he is now wrapping his arms around them in an emotional way of really loving them, really expressing their love. So I'd like to maybe give you two observations that are big observations from this passage that might help you as you go through life and you have people that are going through various dilemmas and tragedies and losses, whether it's of a person that they lost through death a relationship that was now broken in marriage, a loss there, a child who has abandoned the family, perhaps, a job that was lost, maybe someone who's lost their health. Something has happened that they're experiencing some kind of an emotional loss. What are a couple observations you can make? First of all, genuine faith doesn't mean that I lose emotions. You know, even with Jesus here, he know that they're going to cry, they're going to respond differently, and we're going to have those human emotions, I've spoken about this recently, but for you that are the guests here, when someone is going through a a loss, I try to help them understand about the grieving process. And I'd like to share this with you that you might be able to help families that are going through a loss, a tremendous loss. If it is a healthy relationship and there's a loss, and we're going to now, because of the context, really talk about death, when that happens, when that person dies, the people around the family obviously are going to grieve. First of all, we see them grieving in the Old Testament, we see them grieving in the New Testament, so we know it to be biblical because God doesn't rebuke grief, so grieving is not a sin. We also know that when a person grieves because of that, that it becomes a bit of a cathartic experience. That's where our emotions and our body and our experiences and our memories and everything that's going through this upheaval, because we're recognizing that there is a loss there. Now pause. There's a different grieving process for when you lose someone that you know you will never see them again. You know Christ is Savior. You're heaven bound. You know that they have never given any form of, of, of witness of their own salvation publicly or privately to you. You have no reason to believe that they're saved. You know when they're lost, they are lost to a Christless eternity forever and ever and no way out. You will never see them again. That's one loss. Then you have the grieving of someone that you love. You know you'll see them in heaven again, but there still is that loss. So in that two-year of a normal relationship and there's a loss, it takes about two years to go through it. Remember again that the first day you're going to have many, many, many sad days and very few glad days. It's usually a kick in the gut when you hear that you're going to go through a grieving process and it might take you two years. But remember, after a few months and maybe six months or a year, you'll have less sad days and more glad days. And then after almost two years, then you'll have many glad days because you've gotten through it and beyond that. And now you'll have very few sad days. When will those sad days happen? Well, obviously, it'll be perhaps on that person's birthday or Mother's Day or Father's Day or a holiday or some special significant event like maybe even an anniversary. There'll be those sad days. So normally we can go through that grieving process, but listen carefully. We also know the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. God gave the Son. Jesus gave the life, His life. And then the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit has multitudes of ministry, reminding, empowering, teaching, convicting. But other things He does is this. He is also known as the Comforter. Now I'm just wondering that in God's wisdom and eternal knowledge... He knew that God would give his son. He knew Jesus would die. Again, we know that from the foundation of the earth before then that he would pay for sin. And somewhere in all of this, the Holy Spirit is a part of that comfort because we too would experience what death would be all about. And so he comes along and he helps us through that grieving process. Let me go a little bit further because you saw how one person, they grieved by falling at the feet of Jesus and said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The other said, my brother wouldn't die. He was very active about this. That should tell you that the way we are wired by God, that we will grieve differently when we go through losses. Some, when they go through a loss, personality or however it is, they like to tell a lot of jokes about the other people. You probably know some particular ethnic groups that like to have a big beer party. If you remember, if you're somewhere in maybe New Orleans, when someone dies, they play all that music down to the grave, all right? And that's their style of dealing with it. Others, and I've done many funerals of a particular ethnic that they wail so much that they will actually lay across the top of the casket and sometimes after a period of time we have to help them separate from that so they can lower the casket into the ground. That's their style. Wailing, hollering, crying, shaking their fists. Just in our cultures. Others sackcloth and ashes. Others want to just talk, talk, talk. Others, they cocoon I call it. They don't talk about it. They like to be by themselves. They experience their grief through quietness. Maybe they want to be alone. They need to heal. It's almost like a whipped dog. They feel that pain and they just I'll get through this, but I want to go through it myself. And then you have those that they don't have highs. They don't laugh. They don't wail. They don't cocoon. You look at them and you think, Don't you know mom died? Don't you know dad's not here any longer? You act like nothing's ever happened. Those are the people that often, that's the way they're wired. But when they're driving down the freeway, all of a sudden a tear comes in their eye and trickles down their cheek and they wonder, where did that come from? Because in some measure, that's how they're wired to grieve. So the simple response is this. Grieving is acceptable. Jesus loves you no matter what loss you've gone through. Secondly, when you grieve, you grieve your way the way you're wired. As long as you don't hurt yourself or someone else, you grieve. And those of you who know someone who's going through a grieving process right now, just let them know you're there. They don't need 15 verses in a long prayer. They just need to know that you care for them and that you love them. Allow the Lord to work through you just like he was doing here to Mary and Martha expressing how much he loved them by weeping and connecting to them even in their loss. The second one would be enter into life with people even though that they're confused, even though they're confused. I don't know too much about Mary and Martha being confused, but I do see little different responses in how they handle that. And as I look at that, maybe for some of us, we might look at someone who's going through a, a terrific challenge in their life or a hurt in their life. My response to you would be simply this. They might spit back to you some things that, under a normal situation, they wouldn't. Perhaps they might be going through something that they are hurting so badly and they're now venting on you. Maybe they're there and they're beginning to question their faith or the existence of God or why me or why this or why now. May I encourage you that maybe often like Jesus that you will allow them to ask their questions, maybe make their demands. So I would say, if you could suggest this, do you listen with your heart before you offer them help? So I hope you'll listen to them. And then when they're ready, you might ask permission if you could share something But just being there will fill their tank so much. So he waited, he went, he wept. What a model of someone who loves others, especially those who had a loss. Let's go to number four. Well, now he rolls up his sleeves and he puts on what I call compassion, which is love with its working clothes. And he goes to work here, verses 38 and following. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within him, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And that's interesting because in the Bible locations you would have actual caves and then in the caves they would kind of create a tomb or a crypt out of that. Others would be just a slab of a rock and they would chisel and they would create a particular tomb. This, I believe, was just an existing cave that they turned into a tomb. Maybe they put some special rocks there to maybe put the bodies on to lie them down in there. And then in front of it, they would roll a big stone in front of it. Not because they thought the bodies would come out, but it was really to keep the animals from getting in and the stench of the decomposing body to eke out into the area around it. So again, this is the scene as he comes up right there. He didn't go into the town. He went right to the graveyard, at least to this cave and tomb. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. I think that's interesting, too. If you remember last week, we mentioned in the Jewish custom, but not according to Scripture, they thought that the soul might hover around a dead person for three days. But after the third day, into the fourth day, then the person would be authentically dead and no opportunity for the soul to re enter the body for it to come back to life again. As I read through this, I know that's not true. But it's interesting how that Jesus still went with the secular worldview of what death would look like, or at least the religious worldview that's contrary to Scripture. He allowed it to go to that end. Why? Because he was going to deal with their mind, realizing that it would be substantiated. In four days, they'll believe. Now he's dead. Now Jesus is going to have said, no, when he died, died, died. Right that. that very moment, his soul and spirit left. He could have gone on another theological tangent. He could have done that. He's done it in Scripture. He talks about from us, when we die, our absent for the body, present with the Lord. Boom, it's done. He didn't do that. He worked in their thinking, and then he overwrote it with his truth. And so that's why he said, all right, move away the stone. I think this is also interesting because before he ever raised Lazarus from the dead, he's already telling them to go do something. Maybe a side thought for you and me might be this. Sometimes the Lord is asking us to do something and all the time we're sitting around and we keep praying and wringing our hands and we keep doing more research and asking more people and trying to get a handle on all of this stuff when the Lord says, just do it, just do it. You do your part, then I'll do my part. So you think about maybe something in your life that maybe you're waiting for God to do when he already wants you to do it first. Now remember, Jesus is, hey, listen, if he could heal somebody and if he could raise the dead, couldn't he move the stone? Sure, he could have done that. Why didn't he? Here's the truth. God does what only God can do. He wants us to do what only we could do, but with his help. And so keep that in mind as you're thinking about living your your Christian life. The tough part is discerning how much is it when it's all of God and how much is it when I need to have my responsibility and do what I need to do, but trust him to work it out through me. And that's where you need to be with the Lord, to sense what that might be. Well, let's go a little bit further here. So he says, remove the stone. And so what did they do a little bit later? Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now that little phrase right there, a lot of people, they, they get off on it and they really like it. Man, that is a great passage, see the glory of God. I'd like to explain something to you because this gets a little bit deeper here. I don't believe the glory of God was merely that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. For one reason, it says, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Well, if they didn't believe, does that mean they wouldn't see Lazarus rise from the dead? Does that mean they'd walk off somewhere else? Or Jesus would tell everybody to leave because they don't believe, only believers, because be here so they can see the glory? No, 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 no. He was going to do this whether you believed or not. The issue was, only those who believed who was seeing this miracle would then see the glory of God in that miracle. Now let me see if I can share this with you. This message is going to go on radio and on the internet. As we begin, I use the illustration that actually happened of this cable that's kind of under our building. Now some people will say, my, what a great coincidence. Boy, we were really lucky. They probably schmoozed those workers. We probably manipulated the situation or, well, whatever. And I want you to know that all of that happened, not the schmoozing and the manipulating, but all that event happened. But it wasn't about the event. The thing I want you to see is that the glory of God was involved in what's happened. We need to see all those things where the Lord does something for us right then. It was the Lord who has, watch this, large and in charge. In other words, he's large and he also has the ability to do and the right to do what he has to do. Look at that phrase again where it says here, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Stay in the same chapter and go up to verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not in the end to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the glory of God may be glorified by it. So the whole idea is not just in this miracle, it's so that you would see that God is large and in charge and that he is in charge of all that's going on in your life. What you might do, when you find it maybe difficult to go to sleep at night, why don't you lay in bed, instead of counting sheep, Why don't you count all the times that something happened in your life where God stepped in in his miraculous way. He answered a prayer. He provided a need. He protected you from something. And I want you at that moment to see it wasn't about all of that. It was all about him getting the glory. When someone asks you to say, hey, share us a blessing this week. It ought not to be, "Mm, I don't know, I guess everything is a blessing. No, everything that God does in our life is to receive great glory. And I pray that that would be us here at this church, seeing God getting all the glory. Let's go a little bit further now. Verse 41. So they removed the stone in obedience to the Lord. Then Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, implying that God the Son talked to God the Father. And let me pause for a moment. If you don't mind, I want to share a little personal story with you. For those of you that are the very new believers... I did not grow up in a Christian home. I knew nothing about the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. Carol gave me my first Bible at Christmas. I trusted Christ six weeks or so before in November on Veterans Day, actually. And when I got that Bible, I I began reading through it. And a few months, somehow I got to John. I cannot recall if she or someone else told me to read the Gospel of John. All I know, I I was in John. But I had a dilemma before I got to this passage. When I was reading all about Jesus, and Jesus and God, and Jesus and God, Jesus and God, Jesus and God, Jesus and call him Father, Father, Father. I kept wondering, why would Jesus ever call God the Father when he is already God? Why does he even pray, why does he pray like this when he is already the Father? I wouldn't be a bit surprised if all of you or most of you at one time wondered that very same thing. And so I was waiting to ask my youth pastor that question. I never got to. No, he, he didn't die or anything, didn't move away. But as I was reading through this passage of Scripture... I finally got my answer. And so my testimony to you is, when you have Bible questions, yes, use your commentary, go to well-respected, trusted people who know Scripture, ask them your questions. But let me remind you that you have your own hotline to God and no one wants to teach you more frequently, more correctly and compassionately than the Holy Spirit whose ministry is to teach you. Yes, He will use people that He's given the gift of teaching to, but He also wants to teach you and you can with a, we'll call it a virgin Bible, no notes, just opening the Bible. You can trust the Lord to teach you. You need a testimony. I've been reading again the 500-page biography on George Mueller.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Ponds, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida.